2: friends. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership
3: Podcast. This is Christy Penley, and I'm here with my friend, Matt Tebby. Hey, Christy. How are you? I'm good. i just
0: stretching. Good. Moving around a bit. Um, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Let's see what's going on today. It's beautiful outside, and I got the windows cracked. It's like in the mid-50s, and yeah, I got to lead a workshop this afternoon. I haven't really started working on it yet, so, you know. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's
3: not fun because it's almost like that time, I guess, there. But
0: yeah, but I think I think ten years ago I would have freaked out about it. And now I'm just like, yeah, I know what I'm gonna say. I just need to get it on a piece of paper. So
3: Isn't that cool to see growth?
0: <sighs> well, yes. you know what? I used to okay, so you we have a friend, mutual friend, um, and I co pastored with him for a long time. And he would show up to meetings without like having an agenda. And I would I would get so mad at him because I was like this uptight 20-something, you know, <laughs> young kid, yes. uh, hothead. And I would just be like, you know, I, I remember one time kind of yelling at him, didn't, why don't you, don't you care about this? Why don't you prepare for this? And he looked at me and he goes, I've been preparing for this meeting for 49 years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the time I got really ticked at him because I was like, that's a cop out. But I, you know, I'm 44 now, and I kind of get what he's talking about. That's funny. Like trust your life. That's funny. Anyway, oh, well,
3: see, so I am a little bit more Type A than you. Yes, and I do like a schedule, um, <laughs> and an agenda. So those listeners who are like, you know, crawling in their skin, it's okay. Agendas are fine. Yeah, they're uh, fine. but there is like there is some cool things about growth, and I guess I say aren't you, isn't it cool to see growth? Because I do like an agenda. I do like structure, but mm-hmm. when I don't have that, um, for me not to freak out is like real growth in my life. And, mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's both mm. and,
0: so yeah. it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It is. And it's different for each person, I think. Yeah, like, for you, sure. You know, one person's over-preparing is another person's, um, uh, wisdom. And another yeah. person saying I'm going to wait an hour to write things down is another person's laziness or foolishness. So yeah. I, I think it's uh wisdom. But anyway, yep. speaking of yep. wisdom, we got a podcast today.
3: Oh my. And it's different podcast.
0: Yes. What do, Tell, what do you
3: mean? Well, it's a four-part series here <laughs> that we're going to go into. Yeah. So
0: um yeah, so Dr. Nathan, Dr. Nathan Cartagena is a professor at Wheaton and Some of you are going. This is going to be a four-part series on critical race theory. Now, some of you are like, "Inject this right into my neck. I love it. I want. I I need more of this." But this podcast is much more of, um, uh, kind of a. It's not. It's like a. It's not so much a conversation as it is like a history lesson. Yeah. It's a history lesson about America, and about legal, um, parameters. Uh, that that uh, that carry racist ideologies, and it it's, he's so Nathan is a race uh, theorist, uh, and he teaches this stuff, and he agreed to come on our podcast and give us a lesson. I mean, he took us to he took us to school, uh, the deep end.
3: Like at one point, I think I even said to Doctor Nathan, "I feel like I need a life preserver because I'm in <laughs> the deep end." Yeah. Um, it was. It's so good, and there's so much information. Yep. Um, and it's stuff that I had not heard. I did not know. Yeah. And I was for. You can probably. You'll hear us learning as he teaches us.
0: Yeah. 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 And so some of you, um, then you may be waiting your whole life for a four-part podcast series like this, and some of you may be like, "Just tell me when it's over, and I'll listen to uh, the Gravity <laughs> Leadership podcast again." <laughs> just, just know it's different. This is different, and it's a short series, but. We decided to do it because, um, I don't know, Christy, if in your neck of the woods there in Colorado Springs, but uh, people are up in arms yes. about critical race theory. Yes. I saw uh, the vice president, the ex-vice president, is that how you say it? The previous vice, p- vice president emeritus, uh, Mike Pence, basically. <laughs> Mike Pence <laughs> tweeted out something um, basically like, we will defeat critical race theory in America and we will not stand for it. It's There is so much energy right now. it's a a kind of a boogeyman. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's the bad guy. And so we wanted to just give pastors and just Christians, like, what is it? And should we be scared of it? And what parts are, you know, for us, what parts are good and redeemable and what parts do we need to be more discerning and wise about? And so Nathan, uh, who teaches at, you know, the foremost Christian university in America, many would say, Wheaton, uh, has studied this, did his PhD in this, and he takes really really diverse history and field and makes it digestible for us. So anyway, we thought it was worth the work because of how much this dominates right now kind right. of the the conversation. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so go in with a with a curious heart to listen and to learn. Let's jump in.
0: Yeah, let's get into it. Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast.
4: Thank you. It's a joy to be with you all.
0: Yes. Nathan is the assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. And he teaches on race and justice and political philosophy. He also is the faculty advisor for a student group that's working to enhance Christian unity and celebrate Latina and Latino cultures there at Wheaton. Nathan, uh, what else do we need to know about you?
4: <laughs> well, let me start by, uh, again, saluting the great work you all are doing at Gravity Leadership. Uh, I'm honored to join you all. I mm-hmm. also think it's important to acknowledge what ancestral lands one is on. So I am coming from the ancestral lands of the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Paduaname. Uh i I'll note that I am multiracialized. My mom's family are what in Spanish we call Anglos. They are coming from the U.S. south places like North Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Hills of Tennessee. My dad's entire family, they come from Boricua or Puerto Rico. And uh, though I was born in South Carolina, uh, my family moved from there to Philadelphia and then to New Jersey. So I spent most of my life in in New Jersey. And one of the reasons that's going to be important is the racialization practices in the Northeast are different Mm -hmm. than they would be in other places. So one of the reasons uh, I became interested in race scholarship is because I was trying to understand myself. So as we sometimes mm, say, yes. the research was the me-search. And <laughs> I was uh, routinely racialized as black growing up, even though I'm, I'm, I'm quite light-skinned. And part of this has to do with the historic linkings of the Puerto Rican community with the African-American community in places like New York, New York City, New Jersey. So again, the, the, the location matters. But I, I, I'd note that because of that racialization and my act, my, in fact, embracing it, uh, there were lots of tensions that came because, again, my mom's family, they're from the South. My mom's parents were born and raised in the Jim Crow South. They were socialized into mm-hmm. that form of Anglo white supremacy. And uh, perhaps your, your listeners don't know, but uh, racism, forms of white supremacy are also a, a major problem in Latino and Latina communities. And so <laughs> when I was talking to my abuela, my abuelo, my grandparents down in, in Puerto Rico, Guaricua, and I would say, oh, yeah, you know, what? I- I'm black. They, they weren't too pleased. <laughs> we could say they weren't too <laughs> pleased at all. Yeah. So I was attempting to understand how is it that I'm being racialized black in some places I'm being racialized white in some places I'm being racialized as a non-white la- Latino in other places. And it was, it was chaos. And I, I found that there were few people that had helpful answers. Hmm. And it really wasn't until I was at Texas A&M in the first year of my master's program that that I started to encounter some of these helpful answers. And the person that helped me uh, to to get onto the road of having more understanding about the world that I was inhabiting was Dr. Tommy J. Curry, who was at Texas A&M. Now he is at Edinburgh. Uh, He's he's founded the first ever uh, Black Male Studies Institute at Edinburgh. But he's Mm -hmm. the one who, in fact, said, well, given some of your... Uh, given some of your interests, and I shared that I was from Puerto Rico, uh, he's like, yeah, I think you might find critical race theory interesting. Hmm. And I, I think he just knew because of the unique relationship that Puerto Rico has to the United States, uh, Puerto Rico being the oldest colony in the world. Um, it's a place that has taxation without representation. You can't, if you live on the island, vote for president, vice president, no members of Congress, et cetera. And it's become um, a major place of exploitation. But it was, in mm-hmm. fact, designed to be that going all the way back until uh, the, the, the Treaty of Paris, that the United States, signs with, with Spain. So I think Dr. Curry knew there are going to be a lot of interesting legal connections. And mm-hmm. he knew that critical race theorists uh, were paying close attention to racialization practices. Dr. Curry is actually a student of uh, Derek Bell, who's often seen as the founding father of critical race theory. So he said, yeah, you, you should be interested in these. Read mm-hmm. these people. Don't read those people. Let me know if you have any questions. So that was the, the beginning of my interests in thinking about critical race theory and race scholarship in general. So, again, it was it, it was it was research that followed from my attempts to understand myself, my family, the histories, the reasons why, though, for example, my mama or grandma uh, loved me dearly. Uh, I, was, I was in many senses very close to her. Problems of white supremacy always surfaced in our conversations. They'd always they, they, they'd come up in, in unexpected times. There were occasions where my, my mama would ask why I had so many black friends, for example. There were mm. times where she would uh, suggest that the Bible con- uh, condemns having such friends. Uh, it was mm. it was wild, and I didn't understand it. And and my parents weren't at that, at that point equipped to help me to understand it. And the church that I was attending wasn't helping me understand it. So again, um, an effort to understand myself in the world. Uh, I, I started reading and, and, and digesting race scholarship, So those I think are some background uh, details uh, to note.
0: Yeah, that's great, Nathan. <clears throat> we are having you on this podcast because you have studied critical race theory and it's, um, it's kind of a big deal right now. Um, maybe, maybe this is the first you're hearing about it, but uh, critical race theory or CRT, which we're going to give a brief definition of this week. And we're going to really unpack next week. Um, but, um, Critical race theory has become sort of a divisive, a dividing line among Christians. Some people are see it as a very helpful tool. Some people see it as uh the greatest danger to the uh to the Western church, you know, since I don't know, the last boogeyman. <laughs> um, and so uh Nathan, uh before we get to maybe a really simple, I know it's hard to define critical race theory because it's such a diverse and variegated field. Uh, but before we do that, you mentioned the church you went to as a, as a kid didn't really help you understand these questions about who am I and how do I understand myself. Could you give us a brief sketch of what your faith was like growing up?
4: Sure. So both my parents are Christians, so I was born and raised in a Christian home. Uh, their parents were also christians and going back their parents were christians so christians going way 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 back for, for generations uh, because of my mom's experiences growing up where her parents would go to various sorts of uh, of churches they didn't have a denominational affiliation they were often just trying to go to a, a congregation that they thought was faithfully preaching the bible and my dad he was actually a, a child of a, of a father who was in the military my abuelo ends up joining the military in part to try to get out of generational problems and poverty. His parents died when he was really young. So he was raised by my Tio Ramon, so my uncle Ramon. And often down in Puerto Rico, uh, when you are in the position that my Abuela was in, it's either you go to trade school or you're going to join the military. These are the options. So he, he joins the military. So that means that my, my, my dad, my abuela, my, my uncle, my tio, uh, they, they moved all over the United States, depending on what the Air Force had. So they, they didn't also have really strong denominational connections. They were just trying to find uh, churches where they thought people were faithfully preaching uh, the the Bible. So this is relevant because when when we settle in New Jersey, my parents don't have strong denominational ties, but they want to find a place that's faithfully proclaiming the Word, and so they end up settling on a conservative Baptist church. That in terms of the um, the members. Was actually, uh, it was kind of like a multiracial, multi ethnic congregation, but at the, at the leadership, the majority of people were racialized white and they didn't have much of an understanding of, well, they certainly weren't robust, let's say, uh, anti racist. And in fact, uh, when I say that I didn't get much help on, on race matters, not only did I not get much help, uh, but when when it was clear that race was in view, it was often in ways that were maini- maintaining forms of white supremacy. I'll just, so I'll just give you two examples of what I mean. I remember one time in an attempt. Um, to defend the power of of the gospel, a leader said, now imagine you're in a dark alley and a bunch of black men walk towards you. So they're playing on racist fears about black males. And, And then the person said, now imagine you somehow find out that they're leaving a Bible study. Won't you feel better? So, the, 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 so I mean, it, it, you get you get the fear of the black oh, this. male, this, the racist tropes about how violent and dangerous they are, and then how the, the gospel in some ways civilized them and, and, and gets all this, this this nastiness out of them. Hmm. So that, that sort of thing would wow. come up. But there was also a time we were yeah. at a summer camp, and I kept noticing that the youth leaders were paying very close attention to the few of us that were there that were racialized minorities. And so I ended up asking one of the youth leaders why this was the case. And the youth leader said, well, some people... Some people need more watching than others, mm. and so what I knew was there were there were racist ideas about our sexuality and how promiscuous we would or would not be, hmm. so those things would surface um, but I'd also say that one of the the marks of this congregation was that people earnestly loved the Lord, but there were there were powerful strains of not only forms of uh, of white supremacy and racism that that would surface in ways like I've I've just mentioned. But there was also some some pretty serious anti-intellectualism, not with everybody, but it it was certainly there. So I ended up going and doing my undergrad at Grove City College, which is is, uh, known for having a pretty Presbyterian slash Reformed biblical studies department. And it ends up that that was one of the things that I majored in uh, biblical theological studies, also majored in philosophy. But uh, my time there involved me spending some, uh, uh, well, developing a mentor relationship with Dr. Ian Dugood, who is now at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. Uh, he's an Old Testament guy; specialty is Ezekiel. And he writes on other, other books of the Bible too, of course. But um, through spending time with him, I moved towards the reform trajectory. And so I'd say this that that was that happened oh, probably my my freshman year. I had been. Interested in reform theology, but I didn't know much about covenant theology and things like this until I until I was at Grove City, and then after Grove City, between then the time that I finished my PhD at Baylor, I became what's uh, what people like Douglas F. Kelly or um, J. Todd Billings call Reformed Catholics. So the, the the Catholic here is lowercase C and its emphasis on the universal church, and and frankly that that didn't just fit some of my theological training, we might say, uh, because I did a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas, but it also fit my experience of being in very different racialized churches, b- being member of very different racialized families, and seeing how different the cultures were, how different some of the were, but also seeing, okay, you know, these people are Christian. <laughs> they're they're going to be jots and tittles I'm, I'm strongly disagreeing with, but no, I see the Spirit at work here, and I sense the Spirit is present there, uh, etc. So I, I, I've often had a, a pretty capacious Conception uh, of the church, so that that will surface time and again as we dialogue about CRT. Sure. Uh, because I, I'm one who, like many Reformed people, uh, certainly holds the Bible in really high regard, but it's also going to hold in high regard what we might call uh, general revelation and the ways in which human beings, whether they're Christians or not, know things. And and I just know that's not that's not true of every tradition of yeah. uh, this part of the church, but it, it's definitely it's definitely true of me.
0: Mm, That's great, Nathan. Well, I want to return to, and I think the historical context you're going to give us for why a tool like CRT is important. I want to return to um, these Bible-believing, well-meaning, Jesus-loving Christians. How can they be so racist and not know it? (laughs) I want to return to that because I think it's the perplexing thing for many white people. Many white people don't want to be racist. They don't want to have racist ideas. And it's, uh, they get angry or frustrated or irritated when they realize that they don't know what they don't know about it. Um, So I want to, I think that's one of the things that your historical sketch will help us have a greater appreciation for is how could that happen? How could that happen to good people, right? Good people. Uh, But first, um, uh, critical race theory. I I know you could spend 40 minutes talking about it. But could you give us a working, simple definition so that when, you, when we mention it or talk about it, people have something to correlate it to? Maybe like 60 seconds, 90 seconds? Yeah,
4: I, I'd like to do that. And, and here my, my time with Thomas DeQuinas is going to show. So I want to help your, reader, your, your audience by distinguishing three senses of critical race theory. Three senses of critical race theory. So there's what uh, me as a Thomas will call CRT proper. What was, what was critical race theory at its origins and, and what is, in, in the most important sense, properly CRT? So here's a, here's a definition. Critical race theory is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law and legal institutions, such as law schools, have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy. So it's a movement that's going to house multiple traditions. Those traditions themselves will house multiple and competing theories, as the traditions sometimes are going to be competing, sometimes even inconsistent. So you have diversity, not just in terms of the racialization of the members, but in terms of the traditions and and the theories and the the methods that people will employ. Uh, It's connected to law and, and, and efforts to understand how U.S. law specifically perpetuates forms of racism and and white supremacy.
0: So, so then for instance, like how does Brown versus the board of education, how does that law or that ruling, how does that perpetuate systemic injustice?
4: Right. So there are going to be questions about how did, how does that ruling fit within the broader legal history of the United States as, and we'll say much more about this, but as a white nation intentionally designed to be white empire, white Republic, um, We'll, again, we'll say more about it a bit. But okay, what was that? How is that ruling breaking from certain things that have gone before? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the U.S. had before that through Plessy v. Ferguson, um, federal racial apartheid. Yes. So it's not just the South Africans of the world that had racial apartheid. I know the United States had racial apartheid uh, through Plessy v. Ferguson, but in fact, the, Ra- the United States has racial apartheid before that, especially if you pay close attention to the laws the, and the, the practices the United States is going to establish as it relates to indigenous communities. Again, we'll say we'll say more about that. But then there are questions. About, okay, well, once that decision comes, how does the U.S. implement the decision? And then what subsequent laws and court decisions inform how that decision is going to operate? So how much power do, do subsequent laws and decisions grant that decision? Or how much do they whittle it down? And this is going to be very important because one of the things that critical race theorists will highlight is you often get the following pattern. You get reform followed by ret- uh, entrenchment. Yes. So I will give you two. I will give you three examples that this should help your audience. So one, you think about after the civil, the U.S. Civil War, you get the Reconstruction period, and it's like, hooray, this is going to work, and then it comes crashing down with the Hayes Compromise yes. and and the withdrawal of federal troops, and it's it's a, it's a it's a pretty steep trajectory from that to Plessy v. Ferguson. So reform, entrenchment. Then you think of Brown v. Board. Okay, it looks like we got some reform, but wait a second. Even 10 years after that, we're still getting certain forms of civil rights legislation, 64, 65, for example. So what's going on in that 10-year period? And one of the things that you find is there's further entrenchment. So for example, Nixon ends up putting four justices on the court who are, um, we might say, politically conservative, but they're not just politically conservative. They're picking up, and and I'm going to say much more about this in our second interview, but they're picking up on what are known as Barry Goldwater's tactics of Mm. maintaining racism and white supremacy. But, but not always being explicit about it. Yeah, coding. So you use it. what are known as dog whistle politics. Yes. So these are people who are, who are, many of these judges are going to be down with that sort of stuff. And you're going to get the, the development of all sorts of institutions that are going to work to maintain what's going to be seen as Western civilization, which is often a coded term, and other forms of, of white supremacy. So you, it's like, hooray, things are getting better. But then as you watch from Nixon to Reagan, you get the development of all sorts of, of again, dog whistles, racist tropes, racist strategies, uh, and, and so it's another form of retrenchment. And then you could think of something like this. More recently, you have President Obama, the first, uh, the first Black president, the first African American president. Immediately followed by the forms of racist entrenchment that we're seeing, uh, that we saw with President Trump, and 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 the violent, the rise of violent white nationalism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Looks like reform, right into to, to retrenchment. And um, again, there's actually a lot that I would uh, offer as a critique of Obama. But the, these are the sorts of things yes. that, that critical racists are paying attention to and specifically asking, how is the law operating through those forms of, of entrenchment?
2: <laughs>
1: This episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you in part by Respero. Respero is a nonprofit organization that trains people to become lay counselors. To participate, you join a cohort led by Respero founder Joe Bishop and participate in two courses. Respero seeks to bring hope and healing to a broken people through life-giving conversations. If you're interested, check out the first course, which is called Understanding People, on the Respero. Website, and if becoming a counselor isn't for you, consider the courses and lessons that Respero offers. Courses like Understanding Yourself will help you dive deep and understand what makes you tick. And then other lessons like codependency, grief, anxiety, and spiritual abuse can help provide guidance and solutions for tricky situations. If you're interested in learning more about how to be a Respero counselor or taking a course, Check out the website at That's respero.org. That's R E S P E R oorg You can also find them on social media at Respero Restoring Hope. We hope that you'll join with Respero in its mission to bring healing conversations and hope to local communities across the country.
0: These are good people.
1: They are good people. Yep. they are sponsoring our podcast for a few episodes. And so we're grateful for that as well. We've we're poked around partner a, with them.
0: A few of their courses. Well, taking a look. Mm-hmm. People. Taking a look at the courses, yeah. We've peeped the courses and their qualities. Mm-hmm. This is great stuff. And a lot of what they do aligns very closely with gra- what Gravity's doing. So yes. if, you're, if what we do on this podcast, maybe you've been through the Gravity Leadership Academy, if that appeals to you as well, check them out. It seems to me that the, this is a helpful corrective to the myth we tell ourselves, which is we had segregated schools until Brown v. Board. And now it's right. better, or we had no civil rights for black people until the civil rights legislation in 1964, and now they have civil rights, right? right? Is 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 that is that what CRT is trying to do? Is trying to complexify a very simple mythological understanding?
4: Yes, so that's that's part of it. So the the, the founder Derek Bell, he actually uh, he's he's a he's a Korean War veteran. Goes to to law school. He ends up working with the NAACP. So he's he's actually close with Medgar Evers. He's close with uh, with Thurgood Marshall. And he ends up doing he ends up doing inter, um, desegregation cases down in the South. And there are times where he's he's with Medgar Evers, and they're in a house, and and that they, while they're trying to sleep, he's bells on the couch. There's somebody with a shotgun defending them, so that they can get some sleep. So that like. Bell was in the struggle in a, in, a, in, a, in a thick way. But when he decided he was going to do desegregation work, one of his mentors says, well, you know, it, we're pretty much just at mop-up duty. There's not going to be much to do. So Bell's like, oh, OK, well, I'm still going to go down and do this as long as I can. And as the years go by, Bell's like, wait a second. It's not getting much better. And he's seeing the extreme forms of violent white res- resistance. So the Bull Connors of the world, for example, uh, the George Wallace's of the world. And then he sees the ways in which the courts are working Hmm. to what he's going to end up calling establish a kind of interest convergence, where it's like, well, we'll give as much uh, power, rights, privilege to racialized minorities as the racialized white majority is is going to allow us to do. And and that's going to be connected to visions of international competition with with communist countries uh, is is often how it's going to be presented, but especially, for example, uh, Russia. So, yes. th- yeah, there's there's a, lot, there's a lot that's going on there, but they are trying to unpack that. But one of the things I want to stress is most of the founding CRT folks are racialized minorities who are going to be in some of those first uh, efforts to establish things like affirmative action. So they're going to be some of the first people in places like a Harvard and, and, and a Virginia law school, et cetera, et cetera. And they're looking at this going, where are the fellow racialized minority students? Where are the fellow racialized minority faculty? What's going on with the hiring practices? How come all of these things? Uh, how come so many of the practices are, are specifically designed to support these people, but not these other people? And this is happening in terms of class, and it's happening in terms of race, and it's happening in terms of gender. So it's, a, it's in an effort to understand how legal practices, legal institutions are fostering these forms of white supremacy, that, that they're going get, to uh, get that critical race theory gets up and running. So yeah, that, that's right.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they came, they developed a sociological tool To help them make sense of their experiences in their life, much like you came, you found CRT to help (laughs) you make sense of your experiences in your life.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll add a little bit to that. So, so somebody like Derek Bell is drawing heavily from people like Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. He's Bell is connected to what Cedric Robinson will call the Black Radical Tradition. So it's it's an effort to to pay close attention to the broader African diaspora and, and say, okay. How in this country do we see white supremacy promoting forms of uh, racial subordination, racial subjugation, racial oppression, racial exploitation? So Bell is extending insights that you're going to get from Du Bois into his, his legal practice. But then somebody like Robert A. Williams, who's of the, of the Lumbee tribe, which is still to this day not a federally recognized tribe, he's going to be asking questions like, okay. As a student of Derrick Bell, that's learning so much about the connections between um, law and, and race. How do I take all of these deep insights that I have from various indigenous communities, and how do I ex- how do I apply some of what I'm learning from Bell and other groups to try to care for my communities and try to promote their rights? So he's going in that direction. And then you get somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, who's also going to be operating out of the Black radical tradition in various senses. So she she wanted to get to study with Bell, but Bell ends up leaving Harvard Law School and goes to be a dean at the University of, of Oregon when, when, when Crenshaw is, uh, is, at, is at Harvard. But while she's there, one of the things that she notes is, okay, not only do we have to ask questions about what's going on with race, but how are race and gender, we might say, uh, um, intersections and overlaps, how are they performing unique challenges and forms of subordination Forms of um, frankly legal blind spots. So her Mm -hmm. her first piece on intersectionality is an effort to understand, for example, why you'll get a range of laws designed to protect white female chastity and sexuality, but there are no similar laws for black female. Chastity, sexuality. Mm-hmm. She's going, what? What in the world is happening here? Mm-hmm. So, and 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 she's she's highlighting those forms of uh, of legal, not only white supremacy, but now they're, they're they're clear forms of gendered racism. And of course, other people are going to say, yep, you'll find some of those things applying to, to to men, not identical but similar. Yeah. So these are some of the concerns that they have. Um, this might be a perfect time actually to segue into the second sense. So we I gave the the CRT proper. One of the things I want to highlight is in the early nineties. There are, especially in education, uh, the discipline of education, people finding CRT scholarship because the CRT movement officially launches in the summer of, of 1989. So this is still relatively new, but it, it, it officially launches in the summer of, of 1989. Again, all the people connected to it are, are, are doing uh, law except, except Cornell West, who's just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Cornell West has got his hands in everything. He's but, amazing. Um as certain education scholars find this, they're like, oh, there are insights in this movement, there are ideas that we would like to have, and we want to apply. So this is the part, this is what I call CRT in the derivative senses. Hmm. Um, so the question that you ask, or that I'm going to ask as a student of, of the Palestinian scholar Edward Said, is how does CRT as the movement, and some of the, the theories, some of the methods, how do they travel into other disciplines? And what you find is, in education, for example, some people like Gloria Lance and Billings are saying, let's pay close attention to the law. Let's get steeped in in CRT proper. And then we're going to do more of an effort to to think through how some of these insights relate to education. Other people are perhaps making extended say's, but 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 they're going to want to what they'll call reinvent. And it's in part because of certain uh, certain education theories that they're studying. So, for example, Daniel Salzano, who's who's at UCLA, he's going to say, yep. I, I, I find Bell really helpful, but because I'm a student of Paulo Freire, who is a Brazilian Christian, and educator, he said, well, Paulo says what we have to do is reinvent the ideas that we inherit to make sure that we're, what we're doing is addressing the actual conditions of our communities. So he's open about the fact that he takes CRT and importantly reinvents it. So what he's doing, though it's, it's CRT in an important sense, it's different than what you're getting Lanson Billings doing, and it's certainly different than what you're going to be doing, what you're going to see somebody like Derek Bell doing. So I'm going to be asking questions about how it travels. And, and I'll say one more thing about that. When I was first talking to Dr. Tommy Curry about CRT, one of the things that he said is CRT, as it's, as it's uh, been brought into philosophy, has been gentrified. Hmm. And so he, he helped me to see that scholars like Shannon Sullivan were taking the moniker CRT, frankly, just emptying it out and doing what they wanted to do as race <laughs> scholars. And so when you look at their texts, you will find not a single citation, quotation, or naming of a CRT, author, text, etc. Yeah. But it gets labeled CRT, and then and then you, know, you get critical uh, race studies that, that, that comes later in philosophy, or critical philosophy of race, etc. There are a whole bunch of things that get similar. That's why you have to be very careful uh, when you're talking about CRT, because some people want to just lump all of that under it, and, and we shouldn't, because they're they're not equivalent. Uh, so... so Dr. Curry helped me to see that it's going to be important to interrogate how any manifestation of CRT in another academic discipline, in another movement, does or does not relate to the sorts of things that I'm calling CRT proper. So I'm still going to grant the sort of things that we're seeing in, in education or in philosophy are CRT, but they're a CRT in a different sense. Yeah. A- and sometimes it's a supremely extended sense, like, well, <laughs> this person will on occasion quote Derek Bell. But there's that's about it. Like there's there's yeah. no real robust sense in which the person has identified with the CRT movement, has really made an extended stay with the authors, sees herself or himself trying to extend the insights of that movement. Um, but unfortunately for for, for many people, that, that it's not to the point where they think that anybody is doing any kind of race scholarship, or believes, for example, that systemic racism exists, is just a CRTer, and that is that's really far from the truth. Yeah. So I, if I could just give you one example. Um, there's an important sense in which Mark Knoll is a kind of race scholar when he when he's working on the Civil War as a theological crisis. Hmm. Because he's writing on race in the United States. He's writing on how forms of biblicism are completely failing to adjudicate massive political and ecclesiastical questions. And and he's so he's thinking through white supremacy and racialized chattel slavery. But there is no important sense in which Mark Knoll is a critical race theorist. Right. He He, he wouldn't have identified as one. But if you ask, well, are you doing race scholarship? He'd say, yes. If you ask, well, do you believe in systemic racism? Yes. In fact, I'm studying it, it but yes. but in this 19th century form. Um, so I, I want to give that as an example because it, it helps. I, I think it might help your, your listeners see, oh, whoa, that, that's right. In fact, a lot of people were doing race scholarship going way before the Mark Knowles of the world. Um uh, of course, like somebody like Frederick Douglass, I'll just give an yes. example. He's doing what I would would call race scholarship, no doubt about it. He's 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 decrying the forms of white Christian nationalism. He's decrying the forms of what we now would call systemic racism. And he's doing that in, in the mid nineteenth century. So we we really want to we want to pause, I think, for some of for some of the from some of your audience and ask if you are the sort of person who's who thinks that any talk about racism and white supremacy and and, and ideas about whiteness just has to equal crt you want to ask what happened to your your why did you not get exposed to all these other forms of race scholarship that are making similar claims not identical Mm -hmm. they're perhaps not studying the the ways in which law is promoting white supremacy but why has this not been on your radar in the same way and this is going to get connected to uh something that critical race theorist kendall thomas calls organized forgetting organized (laughs) forgetting so it's the ways in which institutions and broader uh Practices in a society put certain things before us so that we know them and then hide other things from us So that we don't know them and every society is 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 engaging in forms of organized forgetting. So if you go to a seminary, for example, you let's say you do an MDiv You're like, okay, I'm here for three or four years. These are the things I need to know to be a pastor This is this is what you're you know, this is implicit Mm -hmm. thought so if you don't ever get a class on race like a whole class on race and white supremacy and colonialism Mm -hmm. and maybe at places like Westminster, Philadelphia, you might not even get a full class period, not, not just a course, but like you might not even get a full class period, a whole hour or three hours on discussions of race. Yeah. Well, then it just doesn't seem like it's that relevant. So right. notice what's going on. The people that are training you are suggesting it's not relevant. The people that were training them are suggesting it's not relevant. You've probably have gone to churches, and nobody was suggesting that racism white supremacy were, were a major problems. They might say, well, those things are bad, but they're not saying that they're major problems that have, have greatly shaped or, or manifested in the United States. And then you go in and you're doing pastoral ministry, and if those are your views, more than likely your congregants aren't thinking that these things are a big problem. So mm-hmm. see what happens. You get this stuff passed down yeah. so that, for example, there are times where I, I talk to in many senses, highly educated reformed people, and and they don't know anything about the doctrine of discovery, for example. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to say a little bit about this uh, in a few moments, but I go, how do you not know anything about this? And when I say, for example, well, it's actually the church that's had one of the most important influences in in spreading white supremacy across the whole globe. Mm -hmm. They're like, but but white supremacy is the KKK, so how did the church and they're like, no, Mm -hmm. no. No, no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. White supremacy was around 400 years plus before the KKK. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And they yeah. might think, for example, that racism is just about hatred rather than think of all these forms of benevolent racism that you're going to see time and again in the 19th century. Uh, especially those of us from Puerto Rico, we, we know about how the, the white mm-hmm. empire likes to talk about being the, the white savior. For us, oh you you mongrel people that are just so backwards and barbarous, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But they don't know about this. So yeah. um, for, for many pastors in particular, pastors and priests, excuse me, they're, they're like, what? How? How is it that I don't know any of these things? And right. this gets into the systemic and institutional realities. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. So this gets back to that opening question you raised, Matt, about mm-hmm. how, how is it that so many people don't know these things? As I was saying, I was in fact in New Jersey in a, in a multiracialized congregation in terms of the members, and these things just weren't ever coming up. Yeah. So if, if you then have the experiences that I'm having, like, racism is a huge problem. I got, I'm, I'm in sixth grade and I have a teacher flat out telling me, that I don't belong in this honors English class. It was my first ever honors English class in my sixth grade again. And, and it's, it's week one. And she's like, You don't belong in this class. You're only here for racial diversity numbers. It's my task to get you out of here. Ugh. I'm mad. And that, dude, wow. she did not let up on that idea the whole year. The whole year. So that class was held from week mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. all the way through the rest of the 180 something days that we had in public school. Yeah. And this is a public school. Right. Yeah. This is a public school, and in New Jersey, we're not—we're not talking about so, the, so deep in the, the, yeah, right. the deep south. Yeah, the deep south. So, I, I, when I looked at that, as I was experiencing those things, I didn't mm-hmm. have people to, to, to talk to. And yeah. if I make a righteous noise against the forms of racist oppression and abuse that I'm experiencing, one of the things that I'm going to hear is, "Oh, that doesn't have to do with the gospel." What are you talking about? Oh no, that it just maybe a bad apple, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm.
1: Well,
4: you can think that when you have these other forms of organized forgetting and social realities. That are that are making it yeah. hard.
1: So let me see. Let me see if I'm if I'm uh, picking up what you're laying down here, uh, Nathan. Um, so critical race theory. I'm I'm trying to sum- summarize because this this is comp- it's way more complex than most yep. of the people who think it's a boogeyman. Like. Right. It's just a, you know, like you, like you said, it, it, there's people who empty it out. They just grab the name and they empty it out yeah. of its meaning. And they just, it's like a scary look at the scary boogeyman. It's modern. Yeah. It's, you know, um, yeah. talks about race. It's scary. So they, they don't really know, understand what it is. But in, in its essence, there is this um, way that critical race theory is helpful in helping us see what has been obfuscated like this organizational forgetting, I think you called it, like it helps us see how white supremacy works Mm -hmm. Um, because white supremacy works best when it's hidden from us because we think of it as such a bad thing. And so we'd never want to be, like you said earlier, Matt, like we'd never want to be, like we don't want to be a racist. Hardly anybody wants to be a racist, except you know, if you're like the Proud Boys or something (laughs) like that who take pride in it. But like most people who do carry around racist ideas, they don't know where they came from, they don't right. know that they are racist ideas, and they don't know the harm that they perpetuate when they think, you know, I gotta yeah. get this kid out of my class. Yeah. He's right. only here for one reason, and I know what it is. And so, so CRT can function as a way of helping us see yeah. how white supremacy works.
0: Yeah, and I, I was thinking too, Ben, just to tag onto that, when, when Nathan, when you talked about organized forgetting, Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind immediately went to the the capitol insurrection on January 6th mm-hmm. and how I heard over and over and over again from politicians and leaders the phrase this is not who we are
1: mm.
0: right <laughs> it, yeah. right yeah. and it, it was almost like you know what I heard I'm getting chills to even talk about this because it's so crazy i i I, I hear that as pay no attention to the man behind the curtain Pay no yeah. attention to the man like behind the curtain. from The Wizard of Oz? Yes, yep. from The yeah, Wizard yeah. of Oz. Um, yes. And that's part of the myth that we tell ourselves, anytime yep. there's an eruption of the real, anytime yep. who we really are yeah. is on display, it's like we, we we cover each other's eyes and we say, no, that's not who we are. That's not yeah. who we are.
4: Right. Yeah. 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 And, if and I can s- add to... Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead, Matt. No, you I, go I'm ahead. I want to add Nathan. to something that Ben said. Um and this is, in fact, going to take us to the third, the third, the third sense. I'll make sure I, re, I re, revisit the other two in a moment. But critical race theorists are engaged in an interdisciplinary mode of, mm-hmm. in, uh, of thinking through how white supremacy and law get connected. So one of, the, one of the things that often cracks me up about some of the discussion about CRT is I, I think I, I probably couldn't be a CRT scholar if I hadn't spent several years with Thomas Aquinas because Thomas has such a, uh, an enormous scope but he's also outrageously fine-grained. And you see this throughout hmm. his 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 masterwork, the, the Summa Theologiae. It's, it's just, it's like, all right, so we're going to think about creation, we're going to think about God, we're going to think about angels, what angels do or do not have, what's an angel's will like, et cetera, et cetera. All, you know, getting all the way down to what kind of passions do human beings have? What are the different species of fears that a human being has? What are the different hmm. virtues that, that, that perfect them? Okay, let's now think about Christ and that's in the third part, et cetera, et cetera. So it was huge in scope, but also tremendously fine-grained. It's a similar sort of thing with CRT. I mean, people are drawing from literatures in history. Hmm. Some of it's U.S. history. Some of it's Latin American history. Some of it's um, Asian history. Right? Some of it's Middle Eastern history. All sorts of stuff. And they're, and they're drawing from colonialism, decolonial scholarship, postcolonial scholarship. They're, they're thinking with theologians. So, so some one of the founding pieces in, in CRT is, is a reflection on uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology. Okay, how, how do we think about his conceptions of law? It's It's sociology, psychology, it's all over. So when I I hear people think that they they have a real robust understanding of it, I'm going, I I get paid to spend most of my days reading, writing, and teaching this stuff. And I'm still learning every single day. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, if I want to do justice to the part of CRT, it's about federal Indian law. Well, guess what? It's a steep learning curve. (laughs) If you go from, I don't know anything about the, the US laws about indigenous peoples to this is a key part of the CRT movement. Hmm. Now you're going to have to learn all this stuff. It's okay. So you like, you can't even, there's no operating in a black white binary. You have <laughs> got to know all sorts of stuff about Latinos, Latinas. You got to know all sorts of stuff about indigenous groups and various indigenous groups. So for example, I noted that the, 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 the Lumbee tribe isn't federally acknowledged, but the Cherokee tribe, for example, is going to be, Apache tribe is going to be. So you're like, okay, well, what are the different ways in which the laws have operated to maintain white supremacy, not just against indigenous peoples as this big category, but in a more fine gray sense. So, yeah. I say these things because the first idea is the CRT is that is that legal movement that we talked about. The second idea is how does that legal movement travel? And then here's the third sense. The third sense is what I call the culture war sense. <laughs> and it's so capacious and it's so amorphous, it's nearly impossible to define. So I'm, in fact, going to read a quotation that gives you an idea of what it is. But I note this because whereas I'm talking about making extended stays with text, I correspond with CRT uh, founding scholars so that I can understand them. I want to make sure we're on the same page and I want to misrepresent them. I take justice to involve accurately representing your neighbor. Uh, And and these these movements, in my mind, are are sacred things in the sense that they develop out of communal pain, Mm. trying to understand how is it that we are subordinated, subjugated, oppressed, exploited, et cetera. Again, my family from, from Boricua still a colonized people. We US is going to be telling you all about the Revolutionary War. We can't have taxation without representation. My whole life mi gente down in Puerto Rico have had taxation without representation. So these these are movements and efforts to understand the world that are coming out of pain and, and as such I'm like okay I really want to be the sort of person that can enter into the sufferings and the sorrows of others. But note how that's going to contrast with what I'm going to now read. This comes from journalist uh, Christopher F. Rufo, oh, who man. is he's all about <laughs> taking down CRT and square quotes. But just listen to this. He says, we have successfully frozen their, ba- their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under the brand category." So he's he's telling you like a Lee Atwater who we'll talk more about uh, next next time we're, we're talking he he was one of the strategists for the Republican Party that constructs the southern, southern strategy, strategy right this is he's just like Lee Atwater he's yeah. like let me tell you what we're doing yeah. here comes the next part I mean it, it, he's not hiding any of it the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory we have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural instructions that are unpopular with americans
0: yes it's the weaponization of crt correct but
4: but notice like there's no he's not telling you anything about the legal movement broader history he's like everything is going to sound crazy i want to have lumped under crt and the truth is because of how various platforms work because of how how um like speaking circuits work and who's got time and so forth well this is exactly what's
0: happening yes Mm -hmm. this is this is so the same than, thing that, like, communism was used in the oh, 50s yes, and 60s yes, and 70s right. like yeah, this, Marxism. right? Yes. That's and, exactly right. And, and now yeah. communism isn't the scary boogeyman because the Soviet Union's fallen and China's China. So now it's CRT.
4: Yeah, that's one of the main things that's going on. And, and notice, though, CRT gets lumped in with Marxism, cultural Marxism, yeah, communism, yeah. socialism, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and let's be honest, if you talk to most people and you say, okay, so you're opposed to, you're opposed to Marxism. Well, which school of Marxism? They go, right. oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'll say, well, you, you know that no CRT scholar fully endorses Marxism, especially what we might call classical Marxism, so Marx's own views, because Marx's an Aryan white supremacist <laughs> who doesn't want to center race reflection. Right. He wants to have class as the central unit of analysis. Yeah. Well, there are what are known as class crit scholars, so they're, they're people in the CRT movement that want to make sure that they don't lose sight of the importance of class, no doubt about it. But they're going to be like, oh, yeah, Marx gets all sorts of things wrong. Mm-hmm. And even somebody who I, who I mentioned earlier, Cedric Robinson, his book, Black Marxism, it, 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 the, the final third of it's all about how the black radical tradition that I talked the, about Derek Bell being connected mm-hmm. to, every single one of the leaders ends up looking at Marxism and saying, here are some things that are good. Here's a whole bunch of stuff that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so Du Bois is one of his most important books, um, Black Reconstruction of America, written in 1935. <laughs> He's like, yeah marx could never have given his analysis given his presuppositions have Mm. anticipated that Mm. enslaved people would be so important for reshaping the world and promoting revolution it's it's not it's not possible on marx's actual conception of the world so i I say this because then if you you know when you get into broader things what i what i find is people like well it's just it's just it's just critical theory and you ask okay well which critical theories do you think is shaping these people? And mm-hmm. and, and what and what era of the of, of the critical theory movement? And did you even yeah. know that the critical theorists, folks, typically they're Jewish people trying to understand Nazi Germany racism? Yeah. So like did you did you see how racism is present prevalent there? Like, how might your relationships to the yeah. reflection on law and consciousness change if you realize yeah. that many of these people are, are Jews trying to think through the horrors of Nazi mm. Germany? Yeah. But again, there's just there's no broader awareness yeah of of these truths and people think well if i can just say it's ct and since ct is bad and crt is bad and now i'm done
1: right so uh, so part of what part of why we're having you on is to, uh, to help our listeners not fall for this this yeah. cynical strategy it's of a dirty saying trick. it's a, it is it is dirty and it like like that that quote is astonishing it's astonishing in its like audacity yeah. um just to just to know that that can be a public Strategy, you know that it that is just like not it's just no big deal. So it's super right. cynical, um, yep. and it bothers me. So anyway, so part of what we want to have you on is to is to helpfully complexify this issue for people so yeah. that they don't end up dismissing something that would be so helpful for them and for their church and for their repentance, yeah. like something that would be so helpful um, by dismissing it because it sounds like that scary thing that you know that one article that I saw you know, on the the one website told me not to read or not to pay attention to this stuff. Um, So, yeah, so (laughs) I'm, I'm glad you're spending uh, this podcast and the next one with us. Everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast. At the end of this uh, episode, I mentioned that um, uh, Nathan was going to join us for this episode and one more, but Uh, just to be clear that this has ended up being a four-part series and so we recorded these conversations uh, a few weeks ago and we're really excited uh, to bring uh, this whole series to you Uh, so next week is uh, Nathan is going to get into a history a brief history of white supremacy in the United States going through just facts uh, just like stuff that uh, people said Uh, it's incredible uh, so that's going to be a two-parter, actually. So that's over the next two weeks. is a brief history of white supremacy in the United States. Um, and then, uh, then the fourth week of the series, we're just going to talk about why this all matters for the church, um, why why it uh, makes a big difference in terms of how we minister and um, how we practice uh, leadership in, uh, in the church today. So looking forward to that. I hope you can join us for those. And... Um, yeah, like and subscribe, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it really does uh, help other people find the podcast if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, etc. cetera. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Peace.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.